Good morning. We're going to be reading out of Luke uh, chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is of no use for the soil, for either the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thanks, Sarah. Let's pray together. God, your faithfulness never runs out. We come here this morning as we do each week, and we celebrate the, the truth that you are with us, you are for us, and you are not going to let go of us in your great mercy, in your great love, uh, God. And so we, we look to you as our Savior. Lord, may we acknowledge you as our ruler, as our king and our authority this morning, God. We want to be faithful to you in response to your faithfulness to us, God. So give us, give us uh, your word this morning. Uh, dwell with us mightily through your spirit as we invite you to convict and shape us today. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him come and die. These are famous words by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor, a theologian, and author in the, in the mid-1900s. And he wrote these words out of uh, a d deep desire to help people understand what it meant to follow Jesus. And for Bonhoeffer, his allegiance to Jesus, his response to the calling of God in his life ultimately led him to oppose Hitler and the, the Nazi policies of Germany in the 1930s and 1940s, ultimately leading to prison, into a concentration camp, and ultimately to his execution. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In Bonhoeffer's case, those words were quite literal. For most of us, for you and I, the the, the choice to follow Jesus with our lives is not going to result in that type of an ultimatum. Uh, most of us will not be given the opportunity uh, to, to renounce our faith or save our life. 
But what I do think is true, and when we see a passage like this where Jesus calls something out to us, I think what we find is that discipleship, following Jesus, a lifestyle of affirming his lordship in our lives, is costly. And I think it's much more costly than you or I often realize. I have been confronted with this passage this week, and I have come to a realization that too often I like following Jesus as long as it's on my terms. And if you're like me, I suspect that many of you do the same thing. We say we like the idea of Jesus, or we like the idea of following Jesus, but when we look at what he actually calls us to, this is bigger and greater than we realized. So today we're going to invite scripture, we're going to invite these red letters of Jesus to, to convict us, to move us to repentance, and my hope is that ultimately we find grace and that we find freedom and we find life in Jesus' call to discipleship on his terms. So we pick up in uh, Luke 14, verse 25. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We're going to see in this passage that Jesus describes discipleship as something that is costly. And in fact, he uses this phrase, cannot be my disciple, several times throughout this passage. We see it for the first time right here. Now, in, in this passage, what we see is Jesus, uh, for the last chapter and a half or so in Luke, has kind of uh, made a turn in his uh, ministry, and he's, he's focused on heading towards Jerusalem. So we, we've been kind of following along as Jesus is journeying towards uh, the ultimate fulfillment of his earthly mission as he kind of sets his sights on the cross. So he's, he's making his way to Jerusalem, and so along the way, we've seen a few interactions that he has with some various religious leaders and different people, and we've seen him uh, warn and confront and disrupt some thinking about what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. And what we see in this passage is Jesus has just left the home of a ruler where he has kind of uh, disrupted this dinner party, right? He kind of created, he was like the awkward guest at the dinner party who brings up the thing that no one wants to talk about, right? And he talks about what it looks like to be in my kingdom is kind of the opposite of what a lot of you are thinking. A lot of you are thinking about this in terms of how can I be the greatest? And Jesus says, no, when you are in my kingdom, it's about humbling yourself. My heart is for the people who recognize their, their need for me, their deep need for me. My heart is for the, the poor, the crippled, the lame. These are the people I'm going to gather with me into my kingdom. And so Jesus had just left the house of this religious ruler and is continuing on his journey. And we see that uh, in, in this passage, there's a crowd following him. So he's got a lot of people around him. They had either heard about Jesus they had heard rumors of some of the miracles that he had done, or maybe they had even seen firsthand some of the people that he had healed. Maybe they had caught some of his teaching and they wanted to hear more. And so Jesus recognizes there's a lot of people wanting to be with him. And he says, I see that you desire to be with me, and that's good. He says, now, let me tell you what it looks like 
to follow me. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife, children, and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus calling us to in this passage? Obviously, he's not calling us to literal hatred. I think a lot of times we come to this passage and we think, this is odd, right? This is out of character for Jesus, right? Well, it, that word hatred is out of character for him. We look at the teaching of Jesus. We look at the, uh, the, the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus, and everything that he commands us to do clearly is love. Clearly, we are to love our enemies. We are to love our neighbors. And yes, we are to love the people closest to us, including our family. So what, what does Jesus mean when he says, if you don't hate your family, if you don't hate these people who are closest to you, you cannot be my disciple? What does he mean by that? Well, I think Jesus is identifying the significance these relationships hold for us in our lives. If you think about this, your relationship to your closest family members hold the most sway over you and how you're doing. If, if these relationships um, are disrupted, if there is a brokenness in these relationships, our, our life kind of gets thrown out of balance. We're, we're the most... Uh, caught off guard when, when these relationships are not in a right place, when these relationships are not healthy. And so Jesus is identifying these are the people who are the most closest to you, who are the closest to you. These are the people who have the most uh, impact on your well-being. These are the people who have your heart. And he says, okay, now imagine how great your love is for them. Now let me tell you, if your love is not so much greater that that love looks like hatred in comparison, you can't be my disciple. There's, there's such a disparity between the love we must have for Jesus, the affection our hearts must have for him, and the natural love and affection we have for our closest family members. There has to be such a difference there, such a divide there, that this deep love that we have looks to be hatred. It's a similar way of speaking that Paul uses in Philippians 3 when he says this in, in uh, Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul here is saying, my good works, these things that are good and right, in the context of what I have gained from Jesus, they, the disparity is so great that they look like worthless trash. It looks like th things that we, we count as, as good things, as, as assets to who we are, when compared to all that we have gained in Christ, they look like losses. And so Jesus, in a similar way here, is saying, your relationships that you hold the most dear are essentially uh, to be viewed as losses in comparison to the great affection and love that we must have in order to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, 
that I have struggled with this passage um, a lot. And, and because I, I think that a lot of times the, the reason for this is we come to a passage like this and we read this and we think, okay, so what Jesus is telling us here is to love these people less, to somehow diminish the love that we have for the close people in our lives. And I think that's a misreading of what Jesus is saying here. This is a misunderstanding of his heart because we know Jesus' command to love We know Jesus' command to have affection for our family. He gives that to us. When you have a child, you can't help but feel a deep love and affection for that child. There's nothing that can take that away from you. This is a gift from God. These relationships are gifts from God. And so I don't want us to read this passage and somehow think that what Jesus is calling us toward is to diminish the amount of love that we have for the people who are closest to us. But in fact, I think he's using these examples because he recognizes that these are relationships where it is good and it is appropriate and healthy to have deep levels of love. But he says, the love for him must be that much greater. Can you even imagine what that must be like to have that type of love and affection for Jesus. When I think about the love I have for my wife, when I think about the love I have for my kids, those moments where you feel like your heart is just about to burst, can you you imagine a love that's even greater than that? And yet Jesus says, if you don't have that love, you can't be my disciple. Like, does this feel impossible to you? It feels impossible to me. But it, get, it gets even worse. Look at what Jesus goes next. He says, yes, and even his own life. If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus started in proximity to us with the relationships that we hold the most dear, and he went to the relationship that we hold the most dear of all, that the, the love that we have for ourselves. Think about the greatest things uh, in your life that, that move you, or the things that, um, that drive your affections. Jesus says, yeah, I have to be greater than all of that. So if, if loving our family members pales in comparison to the love we have for Jesus, he says, even more than that, your own life must pale. The, the love you have in your life for yourself and the things that bring you fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure and joy We must find all of that in him in even greater abundance. And I want us to think about those things. What are the things in your life that that, that have caught your affections? What are the things that um, you, you find yourself just instinctively drawn towards? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it is um, uh, an ideal that you are committed to. Maybe it's having the right things or uh, achieving the right successes. 
What are your dreams? Jesus says all of these things must pale in comparison to the affection we have for you. So when we talk about following Jesus on his terms, it means inviting him to give us a new affection, an affection that is greater and bigger and deeper than anything that we can imagine. He says this in verse 7 as he goes on. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's that phrase again. He says, you cannot be my disciple if you do not bear your own cross. What does it mean to actually be a disciple? We've used that word a bunch already, but, but I want to stop for a moment and, and just make sure we understand what is meant when we use the, the term disciple or discipleship. To be a disciple of someone or something is to be a learner. To be a uh, disciple means you are learning from someone or something, and that is how you are shaping, how you are ordering your life based on what you are learning. So discipleship is learnership. Now, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross when he says this, but he uses this phrase knowing that when it, mean, when it comes to following him, we are learning from him. And so what we are gaining from Jesus right here is he is letting us know what it looks like to learn from him, what it means to imitate him. And the thing that he gives us as an example of imitating him in is the cross. So he, he hadn't gone to the cross yet, but Jesus knew. And we know as we have all of scripture available to us, we know what his ultimate purpose was. And that purpose was the cross. The, the culmination, the climax of his earthly ministry was his death on the cross and then his burial and his resurrection. That was his singular focus. That was what was driving him, and that was his purpose. And so in this image of a cross on Jesus' back, we see where Jesus is calling us to imitate him, to learn from him, to mimic him, not in the literal sense, obviously, but figuratively as we see, okay, Jesus' purpose in life was to do the will of the Father. His, his focus, the thing that drove him, the thing that led him to die was this obedience to the Father and a deep love for you. In me. And so as we learn from Jesus, as we look to him as our teacher and seek to follow him as his disciples, we gain a new purpose. Taking up our cross daily, uh, Jesus actually explains this a little bit more earlier in Luke, so this is not the first time he's used this imagery. Uh, we've talked about this a couple months back in Luke 9, verse 23, where he says, if anyone would come after me, this is very similar language, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Some translations say loses his soul. 
So whereas Jesus in this chapter, in chapter 14, says, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple, we look back to chapter 9 to see, well, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? If this is a negative affirmation, this is the positive affirmation of what it means to take up our cross. And he says, you deny yourself daily and you follow me. So when you consider what gets you up in the morning, the purpose that you are living for, the things that drive you to do the things that you are investing your time and your energy and your affections into, what is that purpose? Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, your purpose must be daily following me denying yourself and making my will, my purpose for you, your own. And, and Jesus knows that this has to be a daily pursuit for us. Discipleship was never a one and done thing. It's not a simple decision that you make one time, seal the deal, sign the box, and then you can forget about following Jesus Jesus says, this is something that you must do in the process of giving us a new purpose, reshaping that affection. This is a daily pursuit. And so we're not called to imitate Jesus in his literal death necessarily, but what he calls us to imitate him in is the completeness of the sacrifice, the daily pursuit of waking up and saying, I am, I am living through your power for your purpose, God, today, and then doing it again the next day and the next day. And when this happens, our lives start to look different. Our, our lives are shaped differently than they had been before. One way that I think can be helpful for us to think about this is we say, okay, my, um, my purpose uh, should be second to God's purpose for my life. Cool, got it, great. But, but actually, let's, let's look at that for a moment. I think a lot of times we can acknowledge with our heads that yes, we want Jesus to be number one in our lives um, and, and be the, the shaping clarifying purpose for us, but then we have a number two, uh, something that is, that is also pretty important to us. And, and if this is Jesus at number one, our, our second place purpose and affection can be a little bit close to that number one. You remember what Jesus said about that when it came to our relationships? I think he's... he's intending for us to think about our purpose in the same way here. If what we're doing or what is driving us does not pale in comparison, is not viewed as loss in comparison to the purpose he has for us, he says we cannot be his disciple. Following him on his terms involves an overhaul of our life's purpose. Jesus gives a couple parables as examples to help us understand this a little bit more. And so he says in uh, verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, 
all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus is saying, you hear what I'm saying. I'm calling you into something that is not, not um, just simple religion that you're adding into your life. This is not an idea that you are adding into your life. I'm actually con- uh, calling you to upend every part of your life, and this is a big deal, and so you should stop, and you should think and consider what this means for you. It's just kind of like if you were to uh, undertake a, a construction project, and you go into this project, you are going to consider, do I have the funds? Do I have the time? Do I have the, the access to the resources and the contracts um, that I need in order to see this project through to completion? If you don't, you're going to end up um, being mocked, and in, in a lot of cases, you'll, you'll end up in ruin of, of some kind or another. This is not going to go well for you, and we understand this. Um, it's not just in this idea of building something. When Jesus uses parables, he uses examples that are, I think, easy for us to relate to. So think about areas in your life where you've had to stop and consider the cost. Uh, consider your, your career choice. Um, many of us, you know, you've, you've said, I want to be a doctor, engineer, whatever it may be, right? And, and so you consider, okay, what is involved in getting to that point? And there's going to be money that's involved in that. There's going to be education of some kind, usually. There's going to be time invested. There's a lot of cost involved in, in following these choices that we make in life. And so we understand what it means to stop and consider and say, is this worth it? My, uh, my wife and I right now are in the process of trying to buy a home. And, and so we've been you know, kind of in this, this uh, season for a couple months now. And um, throughout that whole process, you know, I'm, I'm regularly on the phone or emailing or texting our, our mortgage person say, okay, so what would this look like? What are the taxes? What's the, what's the interest rate look like today? Like, what am I going to be getting myself into um, if we were to look at this home here? And we've been considering the cost, counting what it is going to take to make getting into these homes possible? Do we have what it takes? Are we going to have enough money at closing, you know, that we need to bring to the table so that we can seal the deal here? Is this going to ruin us if we don't consider the cost? Or, you know, think back to when you got engaged, when you, when you were considering marrying your spouse. Maybe you're right there right now. Maybe you are considering um, getting into a marriage relationship. And so what you are doing is you are considering, is this the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with? What is it going to cost me? What do I know about who they are? What do I know about their, um, their past and how that has shaped who they are becoming now? What do I know about their family? What, what kind of student loan debt do they have? Right? I, I joke with my in-laws that I, I paid a, a really uh, hefty bride price for my wife when we got married because I inherited all her student debts. Uh, I, I like to hold that over her, but um, it, it'll probably be worth it someday. Um, but uh, no, we, we count the cost of 
significant relationships in our life and significant choices in our life. We understand what this means to stop and consider, can I afford this? And so Jesus says, consider what I'm calling you into. Here are my terms. Will you accept them? And he goes on uh, and gives us another parable. He says in verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So we have two parables here. In the one, on the one hand, Jesus is saying, you need to stop and consider the cost. In this parable, he's, he's saying something similar, but I think if we look at this, we see there's a little bit of a different perspective here. You see, the king in this parable didn't go to war. He didn't set out to initiate this war. The attack came to him. And so he looked at what was coming and had to reckon with the fact that this is an opposing army and they're twice the size of mine. I'm outnumbered two to one here. So what am I going to do? Well, he sits down and negotiates a peace, a surrender. And you see, in the first parable, Jesus is telling us to consider the cost. Can we afford the cost of following Jesus? And in this parable, I think he's telling us, can you afford the cost to not follow Jesus? God is the greater king with the bigger army. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You have the choice to surrender to him. You can make that choice now, or you can be forced to make that choice later. Jesus is saying, can you afford to put off the surrender because it's coming. It's inevitable. God will not lose. And so he says, you can surrender now or you can surrender in eternity. And trust me, you want to surrender now. We see Jesus' heart in all of this as he kind of summarizes here in verse 33. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's that phrase again. Cannot be my disciple. Jesus is calling us to full and complete surrender. He's saying, what is the cost of following me? It's everything. You're all in or you're not in at all. When you surrender to God, you are surrendering every part of your life. Following Jesus is not a partial pursuit. He wants everything. And it's, it's all or nothing. He, he doesn't say, give me your Sunday mornings and that'll be good. He says, no, I don't want your Sunday mornings if they don't come with the other six and a half days of the week. He says, I don't want your songs of praise if you don't also give me your most intimate thoughts. 
He says, I don't want your good works without your faithful obedience. It, it almost seems as though Jesus is discouraging people from following him. I don't know if you feel that way. When I read this passage, I feel like, okay, <laughs> Jesus, what, what are you saying here? And what Jesus is saying is, I have to have it all because he knows that when we give it all to him, what we gain is greater than anything else that we have given up. He is confident in calling us to complete surrender because of what he has to offer us. He, he finishes uh, this section here by finishing with one more parable. And he says in 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, there, there, discipleship is something and it, it can't be replaced with something that looks like discipleship because it's not the real thing. Have you, ever, uh, have you ever seen salt that had no flavor? It doesn't exist. Salt can't lose its flavor. And so Jesus was saying, imagine something as uh, ridiculous as salt with no flavor. What would that be good for? Nothing. He's saying, just in the same way, a disciple of Jesus or someone who claims to be a disciple who has not given up every part of your life, it's a counterfeit. It's not real. And Jesus says, don't settle for counterfeit. Don't settle for thinking that I'm a Christian because I simply show up to church on Sunday mornings and that's enough. Jesus says, what I offer you is so much better. But there's only one way to get it. So we ask ourselves, okay, well, what does it mean to be successful in following Jesus? What does it mean to respond to what Jesus is saying here and be faithful and be successful? Well, it means accepting his terms. It means accepting what he has laid out for us. He says, you have affections in your life. My, my affection or the affection you have for me must be greater. It's, it's accepting Jesus on these terms and saying, okay, Jesus, I want you to give me a new affection it's saying, I'm accepting you, Jesus, saying, on, on your terms of you, Jesus. My life, your terms of my life, purpose must be defined by you and not anything else that even and not anything else that even comes remotely close. It's inviting Jesus to give it's us, inviting new, Jesus to give us a new purpose. And it's saying, and it's saying Jesus is accepting that what he is calling us in is that what he is calling us to surrender. Complete surrender. Authority that we are submitting to. Authority that we are submitting to. So in his terms, he says, "You must submit 
things we can, of course, come to a passage like this that in a lot of ways is difficult. If you're like me, if you're like me, my tendency is my tendency is like this to read a passage like away from it and then walk away from it. Action steps, a list of action steps, and motivation. Okay, this is what I need to do. All right, I need to do this. This is what I need to do. All right, I need to do this. I need to do this. I do this. And I think the the point, and I think that we miss. If that, that is miss, our takeaway, if that is our takeaway, is that Jesus is, is not that in Jesus is not intending necessarily in this passage. I think necessarily in this passage, I think prescribe for us the way to become a disciple. The way to become a disciple. This passage is not this primarily is not primarily prescriptive. prescriptive. It's much more. Descriptive. It's much more. He is describing for us. He is describing this is for what us. A disciple looks this like. is what a disciple looks like. Doesn't look like this. Something that doesn't look like a this is not disciple. a disciple. And, and again, and when I said that this sounds again, normal, when I said that this sounding Jesus' intent this way is to help us see that it is. It is impossible. We can't choose to make our love for Jesus big enough that we will earn our way into his favor. We can't, we can't choose to uh, commit to his purpose enough times that suddenly we've reached the point at which he accepts us. No, Jesus says you actually can't do it. So the application for us is not to work harder what does he call us to? It's to come and die. Remember what uh, Brian read earlier, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus calls for complete sacrifice, complete renunciation of our old life, because he knows if we hang on to any part of this, if we hold on to any of our old desires, any of our pet sins, any of the things that our affections are drawn towards that are not him, even though some of those things are very good and are very right, if we hold on to those, when, when the moment comes where one of those things is removed from our life, one of those things is taken away. Uh, the persecution comes. The trials come our way. If we're still holding on to some of those things, we're going to cling even harder to them. We're going to seek to find our fulfillment even more. And so Jesus recognizes this, and in his grace, he calls to us and says, you can't just give part of yourself to me. You've got to bring the whole thing to the point where it's, we refer to it as dying to ourselves. And we, we see this idea of dying as a negative thing, but in the context of what Jesus is calling us to, when we come to him, when our life is hidden with him, what he gives us is so much better than what we started with in the first place. We discover that what he's inviting us into is not actually burdensome at all. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can't work hard enough to become a disciple of Jesus. We have to let him take that burden for us in dying to ourselves, and it's in doing that that we receive his life. The more we do this, the more we realize um, that there, there was a cost involved in our salvation. There's a, there's a great cost because we, we, um, we, the, the, the more we respond to the call of Jesus and walk in obedience to him, the more we see and the more our sin is revealed to us, the, the more we see just our inclination towards rebellion. And so the, the closer we get to Jesus, the longer we walk with him, as our Savior, the more we see the cost that he paid for us. It's like, oh, you paid for that too. Oh, and that. See, the reason Jesus calls for us to completely surrender ourselves is because we realize that there are things about us that we don't feel we can give to him. There are things that we feel like we need to hold on to tight. We, we say, I, I, okay, Jesus, I hear you. I, I hear what you're calling me to, but there's just this one sin that um, I'm just going to keep to myself. There's this area of shame that I, I believe you died for my sin, but there's no way that you can take this from me. Now, Jesus says, I want it all. He says, bring all of it, every part of your life. And he went to the cross for every part of your life. This grace is costly. And he paid the cost. We were bought with a price. And so when we look to Jesus and we see what his terms are, we repent and we say, yes, Lord, take it all. I surrender every part, the ugly parts, the good parts. God, take it all. I surrender it to you. And in dying to ourselves, we receive his life. We come to the Lord's table today as we do each week. And this is a celebration of the life that we have in Jesus. We, we look at the sacrifice that he paid, the, the great cost that he paid on our behalf. And we remember, we, we repent of our, of our failures and our sins, the, the, the weight of our burden, we bring it to him again. And we say, in repentance and faith, we acknowledge your sacrifice, Jesus. So if you have the communion elements with you, we'll uh, partake of this together. Let's take the bread that represents his body.
the juice that represents his blood shed on the cross. Lord Jesus, we recognize your terms. We see that what you have called us into is not a partial surrender, but a complete surrender. And in in doing so, we realize that you are not simply taking the parts of our life that we feel good about. You take every part of us, Lord, and in that we rejoice. We find our hope and our peace and our rest in you alone because your burden is light. Lord, lead us into faithful obedience. Lead us into an awareness that when we have been saved by you, we cannot lose that salvation because you've given us a new heart, a new mind. Lord, may we rejoice in that. May that lead us to worship you passionately with great joy and boldness for all that you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.